Welcome to the International Civil Society Center's Futures and Innovation Podcast. My name is Nyamburambogwa. I'm a communications consultant based in Nairobi and passionate about knowledge sharing and information accessibility. The Center's annual innovation report brings into focus innovations that can benefit international civil society organizations and also shows in turn how these organizations are benefiting society in challenging or complex contemporary contexts. This podcast episode forms part of the 2022 edition on civil society innovation and digital power shift, highlighting promising innovations by civil society organizations in delivering solutions for digital inclusion. In each of these podcast case stories, we really want to lift the lid on these innovations and hear directly from the people at the heart of designing and delivering them. Today, we will be highlighting the Rainforest Alert project that has been devised and implemented by two organizations. The first is Rainforest Foundation US, and the second is the Organization of the Indigenous Peoples of the Eastern Amazon, otherwise known as Orpio. Today, I am joined by Susan Pelletier and Cameron Ellis. Susan is the Executive Director at Rainforest Foundation US, and Cameron works as a Senior Geographer. Welcome to the podcast. To begin with, I would like to ask, who is your organization and what do you do? The Rainforest Foundation in the U.S. were an environmental and human rights organization based in the United States. And we work with indigenous peoples in Central and South America to protect rainforests. And what is the big idea around this project and the innovation with the monitoring of rainforests in Central and South America? and the indigenous communities that live in those forests. Why does this project matter? I'm happy to answer that. This is Cameron. And just to be clear, you know, our focus is on rainforests in Central and South America, and also the, you know, the indigenous communities that live in, in those forests. We sort of taking a step back, we support kind of territorial security for indigenous communities. For a long time, that really meant that our organization focused on helping indigenous communities achieve formal land title. Uh, many communities don't live on lands or they've lived on lands for many years that are not recognized by their governments. But increasingly, I would say over the past five to 10 years, we've also noticed a, a growing number of threats to indigenous communities, whether those communities are titled and formally recognized by the government or unrecognized by the government. And the monitoring program is really a response to those threats. So it's supporting those communities communities basically defend their territories against illegal activities that are that are you know coming in coming in from the outside so it's really a piece of the larger territorial security mission but different than the formal land rights work that we did for many years prior to starting this program go ahead Suzanne to echo what Cameron was saying the, the work that we've been doing for, for many years related to land rights, what we, what we saw is that about five, 10, 10 years ago, we saw that there were new innovative tech, technical tools that were coming online that all of a sudden were much more affordable for an, an organization like us, for the average person. They were much more user-friendly. There was a lot better remote sensing data that was becoming publicly available. And so we saw that there was a moment that we could 
access and utilize those tools to really enhance the, the work that we have been doing for, for decades as an organization, but importantly, working hand in hand with community members to learn how to use those tools for their own community benefit. This particular program that we're, that we're discussing, we're collaborating with a product that the World Resources Institute has developed called Global Forest Watch. They were able mm-hmm. to take publicly available satellite data that showed change in forest cover. And that was a real game changer for the work that we did because we could then work with communities to actually see where the forest was changing in their community, where deforestation was happening in near real time. And so it was the first time that some of the communities that we worked with were ever able to see their community from space, from mm-hmm. um, and near near real time. Sometimes the deforestation would happen so quickly that communities wouldn't even know where it was happening until it was too late. So oh, wow. This the sort of innovation here is taking this really incredible technology of satellites and then an interface that you can see, you know, put in a map of your own community and make that really accessible and user-friendly for, for us as an NGO that's not a tech NGO, although you know, Cameron is we do have a geographer on, on staff, but we've been able to to train the indigenous leaders and communities that we work with to really utilize these tools for the benefit of their forests, their communities. Excellent. And that actually brings me to my next question. You've touched about this a little bit in both your answers in terms of satellite imagery being accessible to communities that may not have had this this type of technology at their fingertips prior. But what is your understanding of the wider power dynamics in the system? How has your work intervened to change that system? And perhaps with what intentions as well? One thing that this technology is changing is it's putting information that currently was held primarily by governments into the hands of people at the community level, local level, that can actually take action on this information and stop deforestation. Many of the communities that we work with are very remote. They lack internet access. And so getting in this sort of information, remote sensing information to these communities was very hard before. So it was sort of concentrated in capital cities. And so what this system that we've created is sort of is enabling that information to get from the top down to the grassroots where it can actually be, be acted on. Cameron, I'm sure you can add to that. I think that there's there's sort of two flows of information that this project, that this model facilitates. And one is the one that Suzanne is, has described, sort of getting the satellite data and the deforestation alerts into the hands of Indigenous communities and Indigenous monitors. That's really important. It has a huge impact on their governance and their understanding of their territory. But mm-hmm. there's sort of a second piece of this, which is getting the information from the communities back to the state officials, you know, be they environmental authorities or law enforcement entities within the regional or national government. And so, you know, it's it's the it's the information coming down. It is the community actually documenting what's happening there. So that's sort of where like the cell phones come in or drones to be able to take pictures. 
and accurately measure the level of deforestation or the actual threat that's happening on the ground and then put that information together in a way that is compelling to an environmental authority or a law enforcement authority at the local, you know, wherever the local office is. So it's really mm-hmm. kind of a two-way, a two, the the information flows both ways. And I guess just stepping back, and this is maybe a little bit, little bit of a just a, a narrative diversion, but you know, if you imagine prior to having that technology, one, an indigenous community would not be able to sort of see those deforestation alerts. They would not right. get any information about how how you know how much area was being threatened, but they also wouldn't have any concrete way to explain to those local law enforcement officials or environmental authorities what was happening, where it was happening, and how much of it was happening. And that's just really critical information for understaffed agencies in all of these countries that are always having to prioritize where are they going to spend their law enforcement money? And they're just a lot more likely to engage with an indigenous community when it can come with that level of evidence and engage and drop those pictures or those drone maps on the desk of the local law enforcement. Yes, for many local governments and officials, the evidence is such a crucial part of them taking action. And so this is a fantastic initiative to put that power back into the hands of the community. An important piece of protecting forest across the Amazon is the the local governance that takes place. And, you know, indigenous communities, if you look across the Amazon, across the world, deforestation rates are lower in places where indigenous peoples have rights and protect their forests. They have traditional governance systems that have been working and have been decreasing deforestation. So there's basically this army of indigenous people across the tropical belt that have been for a thousand years been protecting forests. This technology then taps into and leverages what these communities have been doing for so long. And so I think that's a key part of this because the information alone is not going to save the Amazon, is not going to protect forests. It's the communities that are able to activate what they've always done and leverage what they've always done to protect their resources. So I think that's a key part of how technology is integrated in the local community to protect forests. Thank you, Suzanne, for that clarification. In terms of skills and learning communities and thereafter policy, have you seen an enhancement in these areas through the through the project? Have communities where you work and where where this project has been implemented, has there been skill sharing? Have communities learned from each other? And has it influenced policy in any way? So I think when we're talking about policy, there's sort of a couple different levels that we're talking about. One, to answer your question about sort of community to community learning, that's definitely happening. So almost everywhere that we work, the people who are doing the trainings, who are doing the sort of initial introduction to the satellite data, as well as the technology, are now other Indigenous community members from other Mm -hmm. communities. There's a lot of learning between communities. There's also a lot of interest between communities. So if, you know, one community sees that their neighbor is doing this and is able to effectively address threats, then they want to also take part in this. As far as policy goes, there are, you know, I think kind of two important levels of policy here, one of which is at the community level. You see community decision-making 
because they now have this information and they have these tools, you see sort of local village level policies changing. And the one that's kind of come up most recently is related to agriculture and a handful of communities basically making it a community level policy that any any new agricultural fields that are opened are going to be not on primary forest, but on previously used forest land. They call them Burmas in Peru. So Mm. that's a big shift from basically not having that policy and people doing their agriculture kind of wherever. including potentially primary forests. Then it's also having, you know, the same sort of policy. And I guess this is maybe not exactly policy, but because the indigenous communities are able to provide the local government with this really high level of information, you're just seeing better relationships between indigenous leadership and the government agencies. And then in a few cases, we've even seen government agencies hiring the indigenous monitors to help basically act as park rangers for national parks in buffer areas. So I think that there's a a, a growing appreciation for the skills and the tools that the Indigenous communities can bring to government actions. To add to what Cameron was saying about your question about peer-to-peer transfer of information and training, our hope with this program is that we have as little a role and footprint as possible in the the coming years. I mean, our role really is to, to help do training, to help train Indigenous monitors, like Cameron mentioned, that will be doing the training themselves to other Indigenous peers. We also have developed a program model of what we call data hubs, which are a few people that are based in the Indigenous Federation at the local level that have the technical capacity to be interpreting this remote sensing data, building maps, bringing that information to the communities. And that's housed within the Indigenous Federation. So the idea is that they would be able to service all the communities of the Federation, hopefully, in in the future. So the idea of collaboration between government agencies and communities is strong, but also with NGOs and the communities that they're serving. And so this brings me to my next question on how design equity has been factored and achieved. And I think with the data hubs, you've touched on this slightly, Suzanne, but how has this program been designed with rather than for or at user communities? Yeah, I mean, I would say that they are sort of the key members of designing and implementing these projects. We are able to come, you know, we're the ones who probably are most familiar or were initially most familiar with the data itself and where it comes from and how to access it and what that data means, you know, basically how to interpret it. But as far as how all of this is actually executed on the ground, that really has to come from the communities and from the local federations, because they're the ones who understand the geography, the power dynamics, how are decisions made at at a local level or at a regional level? How do you sort of get the information from point A to point B? There are a lot of kind of logistical things that really need to be that vary from from place to place. Just access to internet is not something that is 
consistent across all of the different geographies that we work in. So I think so much of a successful project is, is just being able to kind of get things done in remote areas. And we have to look to indigenous communities and partners to help make that happen because we can come in with a, with some sort of theory about how stuff works and, and it's amazing how wrong it can sometimes be exactly speak with the indigenous leader, with the indigenous community member. No, absolutely. That's why we are also covering these projects where it's innovation with communities, but also with inclusion and with a very deep thought process of how the people who are participating in these projects are also partners and not simply users at the end of the day. And so what is the impact and influence that this project is having? So how do you know if it's working and if it's meeting its intended objectives? Are the users and participants able to provide direct feedback about the efficacy? And how would you describe its wider public good value? So as far as like how we know this is working, so it's, it's been a process, you know, we've been working on, on developing this methodology and co-creation of this sort of system at the community level for many years. And what we saw is first we had anecdotal information. We had anecdotal information that when this sort of system of using integrating satellite-based technology and local community patrolling and monitoring with local governance, we found that, that communities that we were working with had lower deforestation rates. So we knew that anecdotally in a couple of different countries, but then we wanted to prove to, to the world and, and for, our, for ourselves, what would happen if this was if we did this at scale. And so we actually partnered with researchers from Columbia University and then later Johns Hopkins and NYU to do a randomized control trial study of this program. And so we worked in 39 communities across 250,000 hectares in Peru. And over two years, really looked at the impact of this, of this work at the local level on governance issues and deforestation rates. And so the researchers found that after one year of implementing this, this program, that over 50% decrease in deforestation in the communities, wow. the treatment communities versus the control communities. So we were thrilled to get that, that feedback. We continued for a second year, also had deforestation decreases the second year as well. That work that, that those researchers did was recently published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences last, last summer. So we feel like we have this like, great piece of evidence for this, for this type of work. So that was the one big thing. It's the first time we've ever been involved in a, in a study like this. So, and we really look forward to continuing to, to look at and measure the, the impact of this sort of work over, over the coming years. Cameron, I think you have something to add here. If we can cut deforestation in half across the, what is it, almost 30% of the Amazon basin that is under indigenous land tenure right now, you know, that's just a massive impact in terms of reduced deforestation, in terms of biodiversity, in terms of greenhouse gas emissions and everything. So just, just sort of applying that number to the scale 
of you know indigenous occupancy of of central and south america is right there just sort of an amazing opportunity and then i think you know the the other thing that this study pointed out was one that it did reduce deforestation but two that it had a really positive impact on local governance and local engagement in governance so if you kind of can imagine a city council meeting that has no one no one in the audience at first and then you bring in something like this you bring in these activities and all of a sudden they're just a lot more community members who want to be involved in sort of keeping track of what's going on in their territory they want to be involved in monitoring they want to hear what's happening to their forest they want to be you know engaged in whatever the response is if there's a threat that was one of the larger results of the study. Um, it's obviously a little bit harder to quantify, but I think it's a really important one when you think about how important governance, you know, good governance is at the community level, at the federation level, you know, at basically all levels of government. When, you know, thinking about what the wider effect that this could have, one thing that we you know, hearing a lot more recently is about the lack of funding, the cl climate finance that is reaching the local community level for forest protection. There's you know, less than 1% of all climate finance, international climate financing actually reaches communities at the local level. And so what I feel that this program and this study shows is that if you invest at the local level, it works and you're going to protect forests. And it's also a very a cost-effective strategy. I mean, we implemented this program um, and found the avoided deforestation at about $5 per ton of CO2. So I think that this could be, yes, it's one country, it's one study, but it's a really tangible example of how international you know, funding can be used really effectively, cost-effectively at the, at the local level. Thank you for those detailed answers. I think we really heard about the impact and the influence of the project and what it's really doing to curb deforestation. And so what are the, your main takeaways for other organizations based on this experience? This question is more towards the implementation and the interaction with the communities that are participating in this. Do you have some lessons learned for other organizations who may be perhaps introducing a new technology to a community that may need this tool but may not have it? I think that sort of the biggest lesson or one of the bigger lessons here is really something that you touched on earlier, which is that it's important that these projects be co-designed with the indigenous communities or local communities, whatever they may be. I think all too, all too often these sort of projects come from way up on high and the design all happens a long way away from the place that it's actually gonna be implemented. And so they sort of fail because they're not taking into account all of the small nuances on the ground. So I would say that, you know, any community working on these on, on or any sort of any organization intending to benefit indigenous communities or local communities really needs to work with them on the project design, really understand their threats, really understand their constraints and build the solutions that 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 reflect those constraints. And I also think that, as Suzanne mentioned earlier, you know, there's the funding question and a lot of funding that is well-intentioned and 
is intended to address deforestation or address land titling or any of those sort of things does not always make it to the communities that it that it's intended to make it to. So I think it's really important for organizations to think hard about how is every dollar that goes into the program actually getting to the ground and making the impact that that they're expecting. Um, and then lastly, these tools that we're using for this particular application are also broadly, more broadly useful for communities. So anybody who can work with the cell phones and gather information, collect data, who can work with maps, who can do the geographic information system stuff, those people in those groups are also right now, you know, using those very same skills to work on formal land rights and expanding land titling efforts for communities, addressing conflicts between boundaries of a forest concession and a community so that, so, you know, if you, if you deploy the right tools, they have an application well beyond sort of the the initial application. And then just going back to like COVID, right? Those same, yeah. same monitors and same tools were helpful for tracking COVID cases and getting that information to public health officials. And so I think that when you're designing this and putting it all together, it's really important to consider sort of the broad range of applications for these tools and keep an open mind about what they what they can be used for. Thank you, Cameron. I think you made a very good point about the impact reaching the communities it's intended to, but also the dynamic uses of technology and innovations with different projects. They can also be applied in different ways. Suzanne, I don't know if you wanted to add on to that. I would just reiterate that when implementing a, a program that is really you know, tech focused, just to really make sure that you're focused, the org implementing organization is focused on governance and capacity building as well. And really thinking about what happens after, after that organization leaves the support for that community and making sure that the, the capacity is really well established at the, at the community level to be able to continue and build on and expand what, what you've done. Excellent. Thank you. And finally, my last question is what is next for the project and program? Is it is the aim to have more communities involved in this? Is there a different future that you envision? So what's next for the program is uh, we're trying to expand it for sure to more to more communities. We're looking at a way to expand that using a model that is most cost effective. And so I mentioned before that we're that we've created and supported these data hubs at the regional level and thinking about how to place and staff and train um, in indigenous people at those data hubs at certain strategic places within countries in the Amazon where, where we work. We're looking at analyzing where could this system be most effective and, and save the most help save the most forest. We've done some analysis of looking across the Amazon basin at indigenous communities across the basin that have some similar characteristics to the communities that participated in the study that I mentioned before, that we were looking at the effectiveness of the program. So money is a finite resource. And so we're thinking about how can we try to leverage support for this type of work at, in the most strategic places throughout the Amazon. And we're looking at what scale can we work at most effectively. We know that 
you know, there's there's a lot of interest in the at the community level in the regions where we've worked. We have strong partnerships with the with the federation, indigenous federations where we have worked. Also, there's interest at the national level indigenous federations for implementing or integrating this sort of satellite te technology and analysis at the national level. And there's also interest at the regional level. And so we're trying to see how can we expand the work at the community level that we know works, and then how can we adapt at this, uh, perhaps another higher level in order to develop a model that can expand more quickly. Fantastic. So there's a lot in the future for this project. Yes. Cameron, might you have any hopes for the future? Yeah, I think my hopes are the same as Suzanne's. I'd love to see it scaled across a larger geography. I guess the only thing that I would add to that is that I think, you know, there's also the opportunity for communities to use these tools to expand formal land rights and improve sort of territorial management. So it's about expanding, but I think it's also about helping the communities that are already doing this work, you know, use the tools and use the approach and use the improved governance to to do other things, to do other pieces of their, you know, local aspirations. So I think there's kind of expansion and then there's going more deep with certain communities that, that want to go more deep. One other thing that I would add is we're also, we're hopeful that this program will be sustainable. And we know that in order for that to happen, there's got, you know, communities need sustainable economic activities at the local level. So we're looking to see how this program can be implemented in a way that can inject, you know, some financial support for the individuals and community members at the local level. So, you know, in the program that we piloted, the individual community controllers were compensated for their time. And so we're looking at potential models for the future where communities could financially benefit for the work that they're doing to protect to protect forests for the long term. And so thank you both so much for joining me for the very expansive answers, the detail that you've gone into with this interview. We really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. It was, it was a pleasure talking with you. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity to chat. You can find links to more information and resources on both this innovative work and the Center's 2022 Civil Society Innovation and Digital Power Shift Report in the podcast description. We would like to thank the Center's innovation partner, TechSoup, for kindly supporting this report. We would also like to thank the Patrick J. McGovern Foundation and the Ford Foundation for their support in making this project happen. And thanks as always to the podcast producer, Julia Passos. We couldn't do these episodes without you.